Okay, guys, I have thought I should bring a very special guest on today because of the state of the economy. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there struggling with their tax, with their debt, with their mortgages. So I'd like to introduce Mr. Nathan Bennett. He's a debt expert and an expert in structuring your company so that you can pay your debt and pay your tax without getting into trouble. Hi, Mark. How are you going? Good. That's good. That's great. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. I think probably the best way to start is with the simple stuff. Let's yeah. talk mortgage debt, mortgage stress. Yeah, sure. Where do we start? Yeah, so let's start um, by... Um, I'm going to go with something really, really boring, unfortunately. Let's start with your numbers. Um, you need to know your numbers. Um, everyone needs to actually sit down and as boring and as painful as I'm about to make this, um, you need to sit down and do your budget. You actually need to look at, can I afford this mortgage? And not only can I afford it here and now, but can I afford it when interest rates increase? Can I afford it not only by half a percent or 1%, I actually want you to make sure that you can afford your mortgage up to an extra 4 to 5%. Now, that's a big number, and I know that I've probably just scared a lot of you. Um, but you want to sit there because what you don't want to be doing is sitting there on the first Tuesday of every month having that fear is the interest rate going to increase? Is my interest rate going to increase as well? Or do we get another round of hold? Or even better, do we get another round of the lowering of the interest rate? So you need to make sure that you can actually continue to pay your mortgage if uh, the economy does not do very well um, and interest rates continue to rise. Okay. And what should we do, for example, if interest rates were to go up, say, the unthinkable, mm -hmm. which is not the impossible, no. say they went up another 2%, like my current interest rates, they're not far off 7 A short story with me, I'd been getting a property managed by a lazy property manager I called them and said, listen, I'm thinking of moving this property on just because I'm no longer positively geared and it's becoming a drag on me. What can you get for it? So she got back to me and, and gave me a price and there was profit in it. But I also said to her, I was kind of wanting to keep this until I retire, mm. almost mm. like a superannuation. And yeah. then she went through some more details and she said, so... I'm looking at the rent you're getting, and that rent hasn't gone up in about 10 years. Wow. And I said, yeah, I know, look, I run three or four different businesses. I'm so busy, I can't keep up with everything, and I rely on agents and managers and people to just to do their job. Yeah. So she actually had to inform the tenant that we were putting our rent up by about, seriously, close to 30%. Yeah, wow. And the right. tenant freaked out. But mm -hmm. then she said, well, 
before you freak out and threaten to move out, could you please just go have a look on realestate.com and try and find an accommodation cheaper than what the rent, the proposed rent is going to be? Mm -hmm. So they agreed to stay because I was still about $35 a week cheaper than what the most expensive was. Yeah. So by speaking to an expert and someone who is actually conscientious and interested in their job and not just making up the numbers, mm. I was able to keep my property. Yeah, awesome. And that's why I brought you on because I've been doing my research on you and mm -hmm. I don't bring anyone on here who I don't consider to be exceptional. Thank that's you. why you're here. I've heard all your yeah. advice and I've actually implemented sure. some of that advice myself and I'm sure you've got a lot of followers that have never, ever contacted you, you don't mm -hmm. know about, who are actually writing stuff down and implementing the information. And that's why what I'm inviting people to do right now, if you're in your lounge room, grab a pen and paper because the information you're about to receive is priceless and free, which is pretty amazing to have Nathan on to take his time out to give you that information. When this podcast is over you'll probably forget about everything and you'll mm. just go on either suffering or trying to find side job to pay your bills so if you write this stuff down you can actually go over it again and then you'll also have nathan's business up there lemonade where you can call him and say hey i've i've listened to you i need to take this a step further with an expert who is conscientious and who does walk the walk and talk the talk, can you help me? Where do we go from here? Yeah, exactly. So one of the big things that we need to address, and it's probably the elephant in the room right now, and it, it comes with uh, mortgages, but it also comes with a lot of different areas of life. And that's you know the comparison society, the keeping up with the Joneses, um, just because somebody else has what looks like um, a great uh, property portfolio or a great business um, doesn't mean that all is rosy on the outside, just that this is what they're showing you. And so when we talk about, okay, I'm going to compare myself and I want the Australian dream. I want the house. I want the 2.3 kids. I want the white picket fence. Um, I want the cars in the driveway. We actually end up having this emotional response and we set our heart on that dream. Now, to get to your end goal, there's going to be about 600 different ways to get there. It's not this straight linear path that everyone thinks we're going to go on. It can be. You know, we go left, we go right, we come step back, we take three steps forward, we take another couple back. It's not just forward, 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 forward. And so when you recognise in yourself that this is what I want and these are my goals and they're great to have goals, but when we get really emotionally invested in them, we start making decisions from emotion and with our gut. And when we make a decision from our gut, it may not be the right decision. So a property is just a property. Now, 
I know that some of you are listening to me going, no, 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 my property, I have had, you know, my kids have grown up in this. I've had it for 20 years. You know, I've done the bedroom marking every year of my kid's height. You can take that piece of wood with you. It's okay. Just replace it with another piece of wood. Um, and if we can't afford something, then let's not do it. Let's actually look at our numbers and make informed decisions from the numbers. Because what will happen is if you actually make the decision from emotion and things aren't working out, we get more and more emotional. And actually things won't get better, they're gonna get worse. And so when I'm talking to people, I actually say to them, a quick cut is a good cut. And what I really mean when I say a quick cut's a good cut is you need to look at your numbers. Can we afford our mortgage? And making that decision of, no, I can't afford the mortgage and I'm going to go and try to refinance first, right? See if we can get a better deal somewhere with a better rate. And I don't care what bank it is. You do not need to be with one of the big fours. But what you do need to be doing is comparing the rates. And so regardless of the bank name on the outside of the bank, if you're getting a really, really good rate with a beyond or with a second tier lender, rather than a first tier lender, the big four, then go to the big, go to the second tier lender and get the, the great rate. Look at what the repayment is not only now, but what it's going to be in the future. So if you are on um, a low rate for 12 months because they're doing a loss later to get you into the bank, make sure that you are fully aware when that rate's going to change. Is it going to go to be variable? Is it going to a fixed rate? And go and start doing those numbers. There are so many mortgage calculators on the internet go to one of them, go to one of the big four banks, like Westpac's great, CBA are great. You can, you know, write your own numbers into it and go and look and make some really informed decisions. Now, the worst thing, I'm going to start talking with you guys about a little bit of what you fear, right? And it's okay. It's all right. Because I got you. I got you back. So here's what you fear. What you guys are fearing is that you're going to have to sell. Now, sometimes an early sell can actually generate you sort of forty dollars or $50,000. But sometimes holding on way too long because we are emotional. I don't want to let go of the house. My kids grew up in this house. Actually might send you to the point where the bank will take it and you'll end up bankrupt. And that's the difference between the emotional responses. I'd much rather you guys make an early cut and a good cut and say, we have to sell, we can't afford it anymore. Let's sell and have $50,000 in your bank account to do something in the future with. Rather than, you know, the bank walking in and saying, yep, you're out. The sheriff comes through, kicks you out. They go mortgagee in possession. 
And all that the bank cares about in that time frame is selling the property. They actually don't care if they make the mortgage back or not, right? They just want to get this off the books. Cool. And so there are times where the bank will say, cool, yes, this property is worth $700,000. The mortgage is $600,000, but all we can get is five hundred dollars or four fifty. dollars We will do it. Then we're going to go to our insurance and say, you need to make up the gap. And then our insurance is going to follow you and pursue you into bankruptcy. Yeah, I've and I have heard about certain um, agents and they just find foreclosed properties. Mm -hmm. I, I know people who've signed up with them and yep. they're out there trying to find those distressed properties that they can grab for a couple of hundred thousand under market value. Yep. People probably don't even know that exists. Yeah. And it's, it's starting to be our bigger market. Um, it's also really uh, becoming a little bit more prevalent because of the US TV shows where um, they talk about foreclosure. Um, in Australia, I and for every Australian, if you take nothing else from this, I want you to stop looking at America. <laughs> I want you to stop comparing us to America. They actually use different terminology, and I can give you an example of, of one of the terminologies that they will use, but they use different terminology. And over in when we're in Australia, the terminology that they use over there doesn't line up in here. So things that they say over there, that's them, that's their market. You've got to understand that's their market. Um, Whereas in Australia, we have a very different market. If you're going to look at any TV shows based on a different country, England's the one. We are based on English uh, law all over the shop. Um, so if you're going to look at a TV show uh, about foreclosure and those sorts of things, if there's an English one, look at the English one. I don't know if you can answer this because I can't. But whilst I've got the expert, yep. I've got to do it for everyone. Now, during COVID, we were told that if it gets really difficult to make our payments, we should contact the bank, tell them we're having difficulties and ask for a pause on our mortgage repayments. Yep. Where do you stand with that in the current climate that we're in now? Sure. Um, let's just back up into COVID because I just want to sort of, I think we just need to talk about COVID for, for a minute. Okay. Um, COVID, we took our hands off everything, right? We had um, banks being forced to give um, really good terms, not pursue people, not kick people out of property. Um, we had the ATO, their debt team, right? And I'm talking nationally, and hold on to your seats when I say this. The national debt team for the ATO went to three people, <laughs> right? We are talking from hundreds and up to a thousand people in the debt team to three, wow. three people, right? Um, they went and the ATO went and put people in different areas to actually make the rest of the other areas work. Um, but the ATO said, 
you know, we're not going to do payment plans. We're going to sit on our hands for two years. We're going to um, not pursue people. And then on top of that, we had the government. The government came out and said, we are going to extend um, demands, so statutory demands, the one that actually takes people to court from 21 days to six months. So we stopped. This economy just went dead stop, absolutely dead stop. So now where we are is we are trying to catch up. The ATO is owed approximately $47 billion with a B, not an M, billion dollars. You ready? Right? I'm not talking big business. I am talking small. And that includes micro. So micro businesses to medium businesses. Now, they make up a lot of our economy, over 90% of our economy, right? $47 billion. However, we haven't had a lot of income. We've had people like cafes and hospitality stop. Um, we've had construction sort of stop for that two years. Only uh, um, emergency workers were allowed out, all that sort of stuff. So we haven't had a good flow for two years. We've had the government handing out money hand over fist. So what's happened is because we've stopped our businesses and we've stopped generating money and we've been given the handout and everything shrunk because everyone had to go on to Centrelink and get the handout because businesses couldn't afford them anymore. Now you've got the ATO coming out and going, right, COVID's over. Let's go, guys. Start paying up. And everyone's like, okay, I owe a quarter of a million dollars, but where do I get that from? because I've had no income for two years. And so it's unrealistic that the ATO are now coming out and said, well, we've given you 18 months of trying to make up a quarter of a million dollars in tax. Now, that doesn't come overnight, but that's a big number. You know, we've had the Uni of New South Wales go out and have a look and, and do a study that shows that two-thirds of Australians owe the ATO, personally, around about, on average, $80,000. Wow. It's a lot of people owe the money a lot of the time. So coming back to, well, where are we now? And what do we do with, with, our, with our mortgages and, and with our banks? So if you can't pay your mortgage, yes, contact your bank. But you need to figure out very quickly, is this a one-off and we've just had a blip on the radar and blips happen all the time? That's fine. Or is this going to be a longer-term problem? So before you ring the bank and have these conversations and start filling out the paperwork, the thing you need to do is what is the exit strategy? Now, by a blip on the radar, I mean, okay, yes, we're up against it, but we've just had to go pay $10,000 to get a new engine put in the car because the car blew up. Um, or, you know, I've had to have emergency surgery, I'm off work for a couple of weeks, right? These sort of one-off events are blips on the radar. 
But if you've been retrenched or your partner's been made redundant, um, yes, they're going to get a nice big payout, hopefully, depending on how long they've been in the job. But what are you guys doing to actually generate an income? And that could be a long-term problem. So if you're in an area and employed, which you know is a, a high interest area, or there's a lot of um, competition for that job, this could be a long-term problem. Um, and so then you need to figure out what's my exit strategy. Is my exit strategy, okay, we need to call this and we need to sell, or is the exit strategy, no, you know, this is only a blip on the radar. It's a one month, two month, three month issue and things will go back to normal after those three months. Now, what are you saying to the bank? And let's get really, really practical. One, I need you guys to be objective, right? I need you to be able to just be like, hands in the air, you know, I'm just coming to you with open hands, right? Why do we do open hands? Because the more honest you are at the very beginning, the more help you're actually going to get. Good now, if you screw us around and say, you know, sugarcoat this and not really be honest, it is not going to help you down the track. So you've got to be really, really, really honest with the bank. Now, the other part on this is, if you also personally bank with the bank, and I know that um, the bank loves to have everybody with their savings and their um, credit card and their loan, their mortgage, all with the same bank. If your savings is with the bank, they can see everything. <laughs> so there's no point in you actually lying to the bank and saying everything's Punky dory rosy, just a blip on the radar, because they'll go look at your savings account and go, well, you haven't been paid a salary from your normal um, work for a month or two now. In fact, you're getting settling benefits. Like, what's going on? Yeah. So they'll see it. They'll see it. Um, and so that's why I actually, when I'm talking to clients, we actually separate out all of the loans and mortgages. So guys that come and see me for their business and company, um, one of my dead set rules is don't have your company uh, account and your company loans with the same bank that you have your personal loans. Yeah. Now, that's going to sound really foreign to a lot of you. And, I'll, and I'm going to jump into the shoes of the bank and show you why this works and doesn't work. Now, from the point of view from the bank, if you have, if you guys have businesses um, and you've gone and to go and try to get a loan, the bank and unfortunately, actually, I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to out them. One of the four big banks is notorious for this. They won't give a loan to you, you might go, look, I need 50 grand. And they'll go, no, we're not going to give you a loan. But what we'll do is you've got a property over there. It's got some great equity in it. Okay. How about we refinance the property and we'll give you the $50,000 from your loan. Oh, and by the way, you know, we want you to actually 
bring across your business banking. If the bank says no to a business loan, there's a good reason for it. Have a look at what that reason actually is. Again, go back to the objectivity. Now, what the bank wants to do, bank is there to make money. Um, and they're there to make money for their shareholders. Um, so that's why they want to have as many loans with you, many credit cards with you. The downfall of it is this, and it's this little, little, little clause. It's called the all monies clause. So the all monies clause says this. For every borrowing that you've got with us now and every borrowing that you have with us in the future, if you go sell your property, you have to pay back all of those loans, whether they are directly to that property or not. So if you've got an investment um, property and you've got a, a mortgage on the investment property, but you go sell your principal place of residence, the bank's probably going to keep all of it. You're not actually going to get any money out and they're going to apply some of that money to the investment property mortgage. Wow. Same with wow. the credit card. If you've got a credit card with the bank, they'll pay out the credit card. So you're sitting there going, wait a minute, I'm going to actually go and make a hundred grand if we sell our principal place of residence. And then you go, they go, here's your $10,000 check. And you're like, where's the rest of the 90 gone? It's gone to your credit card. They wanted to actually pay down some of the investment property mortgage. Yeah. That can't happen if your investment property mortgage was with another bank because you've actually broken that all monies clause. Yeah, something similar to that happened to me with an investment property. And we'd actually, I actually had fair bit of money on top of that loan extra that had sitting there just to lower the interest rates. This was going back to the early 2000s when interest rates were up around that 8%. Yep. And I'd actually sold the property and the bank took that extra money that I had sitting on top of it because I had another loan. Mm. They just took it. I was going to use that money for another deposit elsewhere. And yeah. I asked a broker and said, where's that excess money I was going to use for my other purchase? And he said, oh, the mm. bank absorbed all that. And yeah. I said, but that was going to be my deposit. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, they took it. Yeah. That was the end of it. It you is. Know? And that is the end of it. And I've been missing it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's the problem. Like. Whilst it's easy to fall into the trap of somebody saying, let's go do an investment property. Oh, just use the same bank. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do my it. Lesson. And now basically my finance, my company, all my company uh, finances are with one bank and my loans mm -hmm. are with the other bank. Yep. So with the privacy clauses, they don't talk to each other. So... I don't have any issues there. So that was something that I learned. And then also what I learned was about the refinancing of the loan that mm -hmm. we spoke about where all that interest is packed at the front of the loan. 
Would you yep. be able to elaborate? Because to be honest, that bit of advice that you're about to deliver now is worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for people that do not know this. Yep, sure. So with your loans, um, and I'm just going to use, it's exactly the same for mortgages. I'm just going to use the car loan as the example because it just makes life a little easier. Um, so when we go to, to get a car and you guys go do a five-year um, loan on that car, whichever way you do it, right? Shadow mortgages or high purchase, whatever. Um, what happens in the life of that loan is all of your interest is actually paid in the first three years. Your car is actually not worth anything if you went to sell it and pay out the finance until year three. Now, when I talk about that with, you know, people that are looking to go bankrupt, one of the things that we, we don't encourage this, but we do ask, where's your car at? Just because if it's about to blow up, we do say, go and get a loan for your car. Yeah. Um, but because by the time they get out of bankruptcy, which is three years, um, then the car's actually starting to be worth something. At the front end where they go into bankruptcy, it's worth nothing because the loan is actually uh, worth more than the value of that car. Yeah, in some cases, a lot more. Yeah, exactly. And the same with your property, right? So if you've got a 25-year loan, which is what most people have, or 30 years if you're lucky, um, all of the interest is packed in right at the front and you're actually not making as much money if you were to sell it until around years sort of 12 and a half to 15. Sometimes if you're early, it might be 10, but it's in that sort of range of five years. Just depends again, what loan you've got, what your repayments look like, if you're paying early as well, um, all of these offset accounts and those sorts of things. They all have an impact, but if you sell in those sort of first, you know, five to 10 years, you're really not going to make a lot of money. Um, and so like I, I did that, I had to sell one of my properties. It was an investment property. Again, like you, uh, Mark, my um, real estate hadn't done the best thing by me. I walked through the house um, they took eight, the uh, real estate took 835 photos. So they don't do that lightly. <laughs> uh, pretty much every two inches, there was a hole in some sort of a wall. Um, the ceiling in the bedroom was ripped down. You know, it was extensive damage. Oh. Um, and so I sold, but because I'd fixed my interest rate, my get out, for the um, early exit fee was $13,000, right? It's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm look, I made a little bit of profit on it and I'm happy with what I made. Um, but again, that early cut was the good cut to make because I actually wanted to get out of that market because that was actually a, a um, uh, it was a market in a country town um, I held it for five years. I'd been through three different real estates. And actually, um, me being a little bit of the smart ass that I am, 
uh, I actually had a meeting with my last property manager, the owner of the real estate, as well as the head of sales. And I said to them, you know, this isn't good enough. I'm now going to have to go and spend a lot of money to actually sell this house and, and bring it up to scratch. I had insurance, that was fine. But I looked dead straight in the uh, in the head of sales. And I said, if we were to sell this for this amount of money, what would you have made in commission? And he said, you know, eight grand. I'm like, cool. She just lost you $8,000 and walked out the door. Yeah. And they're like, right. I actually rang the, the agent that sold me the house. So that's five years earlier. I still had her details. I rang her and said, hey, I'm in town. Do I come have a look? I'm going to sell. Just be careful. You know, there is, um, I'm happy, I'm doing the rectification works. Uh, come and have a look. And it was the easiest deal I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so she found someone. She rang me and said, what's the number? I said, this is the number. And she went, perfect. I'll call you in 10 minutes. The people walked through the house. She said, this is his number. Do you match it? Do you want to pay it? And they said, yep. She rang me 10 minutes later and said, we've sold. Like that was, it was that quick. Yeah. <laughs> but, I had a similar sort of story to that. And what I'm, what I'm finding now is that so many people have gone to seminars, listened to experts, basically just throw spaghetti at the wall, uh, grab a property anywhere, you'll double your money in five to 10 years, you'll be able to use your, your equity in your property that you're currently in, you'll be able to write it all off, it's all going to be good. Yep. But the only hole in that problem or that, that structure is a lot of people never, ever build in interest rates going to where they are. They were testing until 5%. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. my loan that I had for my house that I'm in now, they tested me up to seven. Yep. But a lot of other people were getting tested to five and now they're underwater. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's the issue. We really need um, today, we really need to be looking at what our rate is now and adding that 5% to the, that's the test point. Not, hey, I know this person, come on, do me a sweetheart deal. Sweetheart deals in property, they don't work. Um, <laughs> and so I know the brokers really want um, to get the business and they want the commission and all that sort of stuff. But we really need to be testing up to 5%, otherwise, what happens is you get into a property, you sell, you have all the warm and fuzzies and we're jumping around like they do on, you know, the lotto ads and that sort of crap. However, then we get to the first payment and we're like, oh, that's my first payment? Oh, wait a minute. That's $200 more a month than what I'm actually earning. Oh, how am I going to do this? And so that becomes the sinking reality for a lot of people. They got into a deal without doing their numbers, without knowing their numbers. What I'm seeing now is, 
And I noticed this because, you know, like we were heavily programmed, I was, by the American propaganda all the way back to those Rocky and Rambo and Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Yeah. And it was just like America this. Remember, we'd all be walking around those leather jackets like the Tom Cruise um, fly jackets and all that in the 80s. And, and people say they weren't programmed. I'm like, dude, you wore a Tom Cruise fly jacket. You yeah. were programmed, right? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. bet you went to California and LA in a on a holiday somewhere between 1980 and 2000, and they're yeah. like, "Yeah." And I'm like, well, "Where did you get that idea from?" You all yeah. thought America was so amazing. Now, right. what what people may not or may have realized in America, a lot of people have two jobs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what I'm noticing now in Australia. We have, the, we have the luxury of being about 20 years behind what's happening in Europe and the States. I'm seeing the two-job economy really kicking off now where, say, for example, I work somewhere, I've got this mortgage, my wife works somewhere, we've got the kids, uh, they want the new PlayStation, they want the jet ski, they want the holiday to Fiji every year or Bali, uh, one's just about to get a car, we need to find that money. So we say, right, we, what are our choices? We go analogue where we mow lawns, wash dishes, get yep. jobs on cafes, and that's really you're selling your, your leisure time to make that shortfall. You're or right. we go Amazon, eBay. We might make ourselves $200 a week on eBay mm -hmm. and and trying to make up that shortfall, yeah. we're just holding back that wave. And I'm noticing that is the new thing. And now yeah. most of the kids, they're all getting jobs at 14 and 15 at all the main stores, Boost Juice, KFC, McDonald's, all those ones that pay them 12 bucks, 14 bucks an hour to do an adult job. Yep. And when we were kids, I can remember parents you had the dad that worked kids didn't work they may have done a paper run or something simple or mowed mm -hmm. the odd lawn and mum mm -hmm. stayed at home and brought kids up and helped them with their homework yeah and then yep. i've seen when we i think where i really seen the shift was probably the late 80s when we went for a recession and then you started to see the mums getting a part-time job mm -hmm. Yep. that's kind of where I can see the thin edge of the wedge started with the mm. second job economy in Australia. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and so, like, let's go back to 94 um, or the late, the early 90s, late 80s. That is honestly the last recession that we actually had. Now, everyone's going to come out. I know, I know you all just jumped up and went GFC. I know it. I can hear you guys saying it. Right. GFC, let's be really, really brutal. GFC wasn't a recession for us. Go look at the mortgage rates. The yeah. mortgage rates increased by 2%. Um, they went up to uh, 9.36 was the worst. Yeah. Right. 9.36. Let's go back into um, the late 90s. We had mortgage rates at 16%. Yeah. Now, we've been spoiled as a country um, to have these really, really low rates. 
Why did we get saved in uh, GFC land? Because the Liberal government in the John Howard days had actually built up a mega surplus. And Kevin 07, in one foul sweep with a pen, put in $10 billion of that surplus into our economy. Remember, we all got $750 to $1,000 to go and spend. And what did everybody do? They all went and bought a TV with it. Yeah, right. we bought a TV, I think, it was to watch the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's what we all did. We all did. Some of the smart people went out and invested that money, right? They're like, okay, well, let me see if I can start a share portfolio. And then they slowly grew that. Other people went, actually, I've got some debt. I need to go pay off my debt. <laughs> Fancy that. Fancy that, because I'm sick of getting the phone calls. I'm sick of getting the the uh, letters. Let's go pay off the debt. And that was like those two, they were the responsible things to do. The rest of us, which was 90% of us, come on, own it. Let's all own it, right? Yep, yep. We all went and bought electronics. We all went and bought the latest Xbox 360 or the PS3 or the TV or the DVR. Um or the great sound system, right? We all went and did that. And so, yes, that helped our economy put a heap of money in it and that we flowed and flowed and flowed. We don't have that anymore. Uh, now, when we're talking recession and we're talking economy, our economy does need to expand and we have growth and it needs to constrict because sometimes we grow too, too high, Right. And we need to bring things back. And that's what recession is. It is leveling back the playing field where we need to be. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So if you look at property prices in Sydney, right now, the average property price is around 1.3, 1.4, right? If we look at that, that same sort of property back in, you know, the 2000s, they would have been going for that six to $800,000 mark. Yeah. Now, there are heaps of reasons why it's gone up. Yes, migration and letting people in and Chinese influence and people, what I'm going to say is buying a visa. Yes, they did it, right? Um, so reasons to get a visa in Australia, you owned a property, you owned a business, those sorts of things. Um, so people were buying visas and they're pushing the prices up and up and up, right? We need to have a recession and as, as unpopular as this is, we've needed to have a recession for a long time because we just can't keep going up and up and up with our, with our numbers. Because what will actually occur is, let's go, can, let's look at Bali, right? Our currency will devalue. And so look at Bali, where you go buy a loaf of bread for a million rupee or a million dollars, right? Um, it will actually start to devalue our currency. And so we need to actually bring back the, the cost of living. We need to bring back the inflation and we need to bring down the property prices. Now, the struggle is this. Everyone's enjoyed high prices as in a supplier and a business, you know, petrol prices are up. In Sydney, they are $2.23 a litre for basic 91. 
I'm in Adelaide. We are verging that $2 break mark at the moment. So we are in the $1.85, $1.90 to the 203s, 205s on a bad day. So businesses are sitting there saying, oh, we love having lots and lots of money coming in, but then we can't afford our lifestyle. And while wage rates aren't increasing at the same level as inflation and the cost of living prices, while we're always going to have that deficit. And that's what we're trying to make up. So how do we make it up? Yes, we may need to go and do the odd job. You know, back in the 90s, my mum did new skin as one of those you know, Amway, Amway was huge. She also went and cleaned houses for her friends and she'd make some money from that. So, yes, it is is going to be a side hustle. What are you really looking for? Try not to exchange time for money is one of them. Um, You do that in your nine-to-five job anyway. Um, Have some boundaries as well. So... Um, if you're not getting paid for something, then don't do it. Don't do it for free, right? Um, try to do, don't. Try, I'm not saying do cash jobs, but try to make sure that the person is either paying you up front or at the time of delivery. Don't sit there saying, oh, well, because you're a nice guy and I really like you, I'll just do it for you. And when you can pay me one day, you know, that's great. doesn't work like that because one day never comes. Exactly. And what I'm, what I'm seeing now also is that there is a little bit of a difference with this up-and-coming recession, and you can tell me whether you think we're in one or not in a sec. Though, see, our debt to GDP is what worries me. Mm-hmm. Now, I've done a little bit of internet searching before the interview and so I like to know a little bit about what I'm talking about and it was over 200%. Mm-hmm. That scares the shit out of me. Yep. Like if my business was that, I would probably be foreclosing on my business. Yep. Like how can I pay back at... GDP of over 200%. Like, yep. I'd have to be a robot working 24 hours a day to pay that off. Absolutely. And a lot of that is because of the ATO and what we owe the ATO. You know, the ATO is the main uh, revenue source for our government. Um, and so uh, with things like GST, it actually filters down into the states. The state picks up their revenue through things like um, stamp duty, Um, stamp duty when you buy a car, stamp duty when you buy houses, those sorts of things. So, um, but you're right, if we had a business, we, and let's structure that sucker properly, let's put it in a company, (laughs) um, or let's put it in a trust with a corporate trustee, all right? No personal trustee. Don't let anyone tell you it's asset protection either. I don't care what they say. I know that they're all going to say, let me sell you this as asset protection. It is not, right? And I'll tell you why it's not in a sec. But 
if we're going to run a business and we're going to have a debt of 200,000, uh, 200%, uh, yeah, we won't even make it out of the first month. Yeah. We'll be done. And we'll be dropping that sucker into liquidation. Right. So when I talk structure, and let's just talk structure for literally two minutes, this is the structure. This is structure. If you guys have a business, a company, or a uh, trust with a corporate trustee is the only, and I stress only, way to go. I do not want to hear that you guys have started a business and you started as a sole trader, right? Here's the sell from your accountant. And I'll, and I'll be really brutally honest. Sorry, accountants, you're going to hate me, but that's okay. Um, here's the sell. They'll say to you, go start an ABM. Let's see how this business goes. Okay, it goes one of two ways. It goes really, really well. It goes really, really crap. If it goes really, really crap, you are personally liable for the business expenses that you've put on there. So if you have a house, you might be kissing the house goodbye, right? If you have a significant amount of debt in that, in that sole tradership business, you might be kissing that goodbye. So all you tradies that are out there, go and start a company, please, right? Um, even better, start a family trust. If you're getting into business, you actually need to look at how do I generate a profit, but you, if cash dries up, so cash is king, that's what all your accountants will tell you, cash is king, then here's the kicker. If cash is king, it's close and intimate queen is structure. Oh, yeah. It is structure that will save you if your business doesn't work out. Yeah. I like to say people lose money, structures make money. Yeah. And I have a habit of losing a lot of money when I don't have a structure. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people that will just fall in love with something and go and do it and then think to myself, you know what? I should have just bought one of those things and, and enjoyed it for what it was. I didn't yeah. have to start a company and start bloody selling them. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. And so when we talk about business, there's this old adage that I find is really, really true. It's not what you know or what you sell. It's who you know. Yeah. And so you are going to need to go and leverage and network, not net sit, net sleep. It's network yeah. to go and leverage and make connections to be able to sell your service or your business. Now, let me go back to something I just alluded to before about structure. <clears throat> if you are a sole trader, uh, a personal partnership, and things don't work out, where you head is bankruptcy. The same with a trust with a personal trustee. So if you are, if it's like Nathan Bennett in his capacity as trustee of the Bennett Family Trust, we've got problems because that ends you in bankruptcy as well. Now, a lot of you guys are listening to me and they're going to say, but I'm an affiliate marketer and I don't have a product. Okay. Cool. Let me just smack this one right back at you. Why did you get into business? Why are you getting into business? 
And you all will tell me the same thing. I want to make money. Cool. Your easy Correct one. answer. That's the answer, right? <laughs> right. Cool. You want to make profit. Cool. Here's the kicker. You must register for GST when you have sales more than $75,000. Now, I know a lot of you are like, I'm never going to reach there. No, 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 no. Wrong mindset, guys. Wrong mindset. You want to make as much money as possible. So what are you saying to me? I'm not going to, I'm not going to make $75,000. Okay, so let me try you this one on for size. One, you got to look at your numbers every week, every week in a business. And a lot of you aren't. Like 80% of business owners aren't looking at numbers at all. Ever. 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 They, Ever. Make, like, they take a box of receipts over to the poor tax lady and she looks and goes, haven't you heard of like zero? Yep. And he oh. says, man, I'm a plumber. I haven't got yeah. time for that. I got shit all over my hands. I split up with my wife. She used to do all that. And now I just haven't got time for it. I'm, I finish work at six at night. I'm filthy. I'm tired. And yep. they just find out at the end of the year, whatever they, whatever they owe to the tax department. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> so here's the kicker. So if you are looking at your numbers, are you, and you've got somebody sitting there and you sell a product, let's say you sell, you know, a water machine, right? Five to seven and a half grand. Yeah. And you're at one June and you're at $70,000 and somebody says to you, hey, sign me up. I want to buy the water machine, seven and a half grand. Are you really going to say, can you just sit on your hands for a month before we can do that sale? <laughs> no, you're not. What's going to then happen is you're going to breach the threshold yeah. and you're going to owe GST on all of it. The better thing to do is start as a company or if you're going to have a family trust, must have a corporate, so a PTY, LTD company that someone is the director of, okay? Now, we're going to get really scary. I'm going to get really, really scary. I'm going to give you some really good structuring tips. And so here we go. <laughs> so if you are the director of a company, one director, one heartbeat, no longer do we need two heartbeats in a company, right? If anyone tells you need two heartbeats, tell them, uh, I hope you enjoyed the two uh, the 1990s because that's when it ended in actually 2000 because they haven't actually cracked an accounting book in 23 years. So it's one heartbeat. The one person I want to be the director is the driving force of the company, of that business. What we're seeing is... Joint directorships, please don't do joint, joint directorships. And when we do joint directorships, I have this conversation with everybody and these are the answers. Why are you joint directors? We're joint directors because I'm scared that other partner is going to leave me, uh. take the business, take the house because I've got no way of actually being able to pay for the mortgage because I'm in the business, but... Yeah. He's the guy that does it, or she's the lady that does it. Um, and so I'm scared that they're going to leave me. And so I say, yes, you need me. You've got a debt problem. We need to talk about that. However, you also need a marriage counsellor because you've got no trust in your relationship. Yeah, exactly. 
So let me get really scary, guys. If you're a director of a company, I really want you to have no assets in your personal name, right? Why do I want you to have no assets? Because if your company goes down, the liquidator who represents creditors and has a fiduciary duty to represent creditors, not you as the business owner, that's where I step in, that's why you buy me. I represent business owners and directors, right? Um, they can do this thing called insolvent trading. Insolvent trading is a claim. I'm not going to go run down what it is. However, it's a personal claim that they bring against the directors. Um, if you're both directors, husband and wife, and you've got some equity in your house, you've opened up 100% of your equity in your home. Okay. If you're not both directors, you've opened up 50%. Okay. But if you're not an owner at all, and you're just the director of your company, and your wife or husband is the owner of the property, you then own nothing. Insolvent trading claims mean nothing to you. So, for example, say my wife and I, we do everything together. Yep. So we're actually employees of our own company. Yep. So where does that leave us? So where it leaves you is um, twofold. <clears throat> One, uh, and it's not the employee that matters, it's the directorships that matter. So if you are both directors, um, one of you should be coming off the company ASAP as a director. You don't need to be a director. You can both be shareholders. That's okay. There's no, you've got in a company, you're limited by shares as a shareholder. You're yeah. not liable for the debt unless you both sign a personal guarantee. Okay. Now, here's my really big tip. If you have signed personal guarantees, which I really hate when you guys do that, and I know why you do it, because you want some um, finance and you want some assets and that sort of stuff, and they say you must sign a personal guarantee. <clears throat> this is what I want you to do. If you actually want to be going to come off, you're going to write a letter, and the letter's going to all the creditors. And it literally says, Dear Sir, Madam, we regret to advise you that X, name them, of address and date of birth, has resigned as a director, signed current director, right? If you want to have a conversation, contact me. If we need to redo the, the, um, uh, the paperwork, contact me. But this is the line that I really want you to put after, right? So before you sign, is we, or I, revoke any personal guarantees in my name. And that's from the resigning director, okay? So they're going to get basically two letters, right? One saying one person's resigning and the next one saying from the resigning director, I revoke my personal guarantee. What you then are going to do is you're going to what we call wash through the, uh, the, the credit. Basically, you're going to keep trading. And whilst you keep trading, whoever's resigned, their personal guarantee gets smaller, smaller, smaller until it gets nothing. Okay. So you keep paying out the debt. Okay. Okay. Right. So, um, don't be too don't be too uh, 
joint directors, you don't need it. Same with partnerships, don't be in partnerships. Figure out who is the driving force and then employ the other person either as an employee or as a contractor for a specific reason. If they are a contractor, yes, we need to talk about the 80-20 rule, but there's some you know, better structuring and employing rather than going in and being a partnership because partnership never at some point won't work out because money changes people. So the other thing that we want to talk about, and I want to give you guys a heap of value, and I'm going to give you a little bit of value right at the end as well, right? But this is really what I want to talk about. I want to talk about negotiating with creditors. How do we do this? Yeah. Right? Nobody knows. I'm going to give you some really practical steps. And all of you that are listening to this, go and get a bucket because you're about to vomit. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Go back to what I've already said. I want you to know your numbers. I want you to write your budget. Right. I want you to do this objectively. I don't want to do this pie in the sky rubbish crap. That won't help you, right? Where do you start if you're a business? Go and pull out your monthly PL, profit and loss from MYOB, from QuickBooks, from Zero, whatever it is. 12 months side by side, right? That's for a business. If you're an individual, go to your bank statement for a month. And I don't want your best month, I want your worst month. I want the month that you either overdrew your bank account, you either got to one cent, right? That's the, that's the month because that's going to show us what does life look like really in a bad situation? Where is my money going? Here's the second tip. And here's your vomit part. I want you to go and open a second bank account. And I want your wage or your income to go into that bank account. Now, what is this going to do and why am I saying it? It's going to grab, give you and grab you greater control of your money. It's also going to default the other bank account, right? Now, if your bank, and there is a couple of these banks that do that, they will honour every payment and put it into overdraft. Ring the bank and say, I did not authorize an overdraft. You are, once the bank hits zero, you are to actually dishonor all of those payments. So what's going to happen then is you're going to get emails mm -hmm. from creditors saying, we've tried to debit your bank account and we cannot, right? Because you've got where your money is, that should have no direct debits coming out of it, except for one if you must. And that one is rent. That is it. That is it, right? Then you're going to make a decision. Do I really need this or do I not? If you don't, write back. I don't need this. Please cancel my subscription. Kill off what you don't need, what you're not going to watch, right? Kill it off. Big killers. Afterpay, we go back to comparison society. I want this because, you know, Johnny down the street's got it. And so I need it. Do you? Do you really? No, yeah. you don't. Right. 
Um, having money in the bank account, don't be scared by money. Don't be scared by money. Money is just a number. It is a energetic transaction between people as well. So don't be scared by money. Don't be scared by numbers. And don't be scared by the calls of collectors and debt collectors and banks and to be able to say, no, I need time to be able to pay you and don't let them dictate your payment arrangement. So when you've got the number of, okay, got this income, we've stopped all this, this is our rent number, this is our basic expenses, here's our number. So you should have hopefully a positive number. Now, when you're doing payment arrangements and giving a payment arrangement, I want you to look at that number and the maximum. So here comes your vomit part. The maximum that you are going to say that you can afford is 20% of that number. So why 20%, right? Because things happen in life. So if you've, so let's just actually put some figures in, right? If your number that you've got every month is $2,000, the maximum I want you to actually be able to say that you can afford is 400, okay? I want you to bank that other $1,600. Um, the reason for this is because life happens, yeah. you know? Daughter Susan needs to go to the dentist and that's going to cost us $1,600, right? What will happen is if you say, I can do $2,000 and then your daughter or your son needs to go to the dentist, let's just use that as an example, needs to go to the dentist, you then can't make the payment. And so then you're going to scrounge to make the payment. And if you do make that payment, what have you ripped off or where have you ripped that money? to make that payment, okay? So the creditor is going to come to you and say, we want $1,000 a week. And you're going to go, I can only do $400 a month. And they're going to go, that's not good enough. What I want you to do is I don't want you to get into the bidding war. I want you just to pay the $400 a month or whatever it is you were going to propose anyway. What does that do? It does two things. One, it's going to lower the amount that you owe, okay? So you are going to actually be able to pay it off. And we need to be looking at what sort of time frame we're really paying this off, okay? So if you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, maybe paying this off isn't a great idea. Maybe we do need to look down the bankruptcy road to restart your life. But two, what's the other thing it's going to do? It's going to develop trust with your creditor. So if you start doing it and they start saying the $400 a month, they're going to go, oh, we're getting $400 a month. This is better than going to our solicitor and saying, let's pursue them. Let's pursue them into bankruptcy or let's pursue it into liquidation. And you want to be saying to the credit, listen, I know this isn't great, but let's sort of work together. And that's where the full disclosure information comes in because they're like, oh, okay, they've been honest with us. Um, we're going to work with you. 
And so when you actually start to give the money over and start paying, they start going, well, I could go to my lawyer, but that's going to cost me two to $3,000 to just see them and write you a couple of dirty letters. It's going to cost them to bankrupt you three to $7,000 for a filing fee, right? So filing fees, including your, your lawyer going to court and representing you. So is it better for somebody to sit on their hands and take the $400 a month for, you know, two or three years? Or shall we run the road of let's go and spend $7,000 to get absolutely nothing? Mm, I know what I'd be doing. I'll take the $400. Yeah, great advice. So people, when people come to me and we, we have, I have, kill your ego, kill your baby conversations. And I call them shoot the baby conversations. Yeah. Right? If you ain't viable, I'm not putting a, I'm not putting up a payment arrangement. Right? We're not doing it. Why? Because it's just going to piss people off. Yeah. Piss people off. It means you're going to put this payment arrangement up or you're going to agree to it. You might get to payment one. And you might make payment one. Wow. Awesome. But I guarantee between two and four, you're either going to scrounge really, really hard to get there or you're going to fall over. Yeah. And if you fall over, that's where people get the shits and they go, why didn't you just tell us at the beginning? Well, because you were money hungry and you wouldn't listen is the right answer. And they come harder at you when you can't make the payment, right? So then you have this very aggressive creditor on the phone. My last tip is this. Don't talk for talking's sake. Now, they will ring you. Creditors will ring you, right? Yes, take their call if you can or if you want to. But if you've got no meaningful information or meaningful update, then there's no real point having the conversation. So, yes, I've for some of my for some of my clients, I have deferred some of their payments, and I've said this is what's happened, this is what we're doing, this is what it's predicated upon, which is sales, but. I need time till the end of the month and I will let you know at the end of the month where we stand, what we're going to do, what the strategy is going forward. And they go, oh, okay, no worries, right? If you have lied, and this is my very final tip, and so my little bonus, if you haven't been honest with your creditors, if you've lied to your creditors, if you think you've pulled the wool over your creditors' eyes, this one time, it will come and bite you in the bum. I'll give you give you two more real, real bonuses, right? Um, and I'm, one of my bonuses, I'm going to talk about emotion. So I'll do that in a sec, right? Actually, no, let's do that now. When we are in debt, right, we focus on our numbers. We play the head spin game. Um, stop doing that. The things that won't help you in Netflix, movies, 
all those sort of things that are sedentary and you sitting on your butt, they don't help you. Go for a walk. Go and put your feet in water. Go and put your head in water if it's summer, right? Cold water if it's summer, hot water if you're winter, right? Go and put it. Water is an energetic space. Go walk in nature and then go and do this. And this is the bonus. Go and get out of your surroundings. And I want you to take one of these. Yep. Oh, that didn't work. That's a piece of paper. And one of these. Now, what do I want you to do? I want you to go write every idea on how you can pay the debt down on a piece of paper. Why do I want you to write it down? Because I want to make this a little bit real. I, don't, I want to stop the processing in your brain of circular going round and round and round and round and round and round and round, right? No matter how stupid you think they are, how dumb, how silly, how anything, get them on the paper. And it can be as practical as I need to go and speak to mum and dad about potentially a loan. Do I need to sell my house? Do I need to um, look around for a different type of loan? Do I need to speak to Billy over there? He's a mortgage broker. Do I need to go speak to 20,000 mortgage brokers, right? Who in my network, who do I know that could help me? Who do they know? in their network that could help me start reaching out. But no idea is stupid. You might use one part of one idea and another part of another idea, and then that might be a third idea. You just don't know. But I don't want you to limit yourself. So don't think, oh, this is silly, and I want you to do this on your own right? If you have a business partner or you have a co-director or you have a spouse and you're both in joint debt together, go and do this separately. Then come and sit down in an objective manner. No pointing fingers. We're in this together. Draw your swords together don't stab each other and then compare your notes and work a way forward together. That's great advice because uh, I have been doing a lot of couples therapy lately, Nathan, and uh, I always say to them, don't you remember when you fell in love? There must have been something that attracted you two together. And yeah. for some reason now... You're at each other's throats. Yep. And uh, blaming each other is not the way out of that issue. Correct. And Correct. then we have the midlife crisis thing, which usually yep. ensues after the, the divorce. I always say to everyone, you spend 20 or 30 years building a, a business, a portfolio, or even just a life together, and now you're going to go get divorced do you realise this is the biggest margin call of a lifetime here? And whatever you own, you may not even see half of it because by the time the lawyers, solicitors and accountants have had their chop, 
you may get a third or a quarter each and they'll walk away and buy a new Mercedes laughing at you too. Yep. So you need to come back together and figure this out because you can't undo that. Don't let money come between you, yeah. right? So here's my last offer for everyone. I talk to people for free. And I mean that. I really do. I offer and I bring my energy, whether you are my client or you're not my client. Now, I offer 20-minute free sessions to talk about um, what's going on for you. And I give you practical, real advice and strategies to walk forward whether you come on board with Lemonade or not. My mission is actually to talk to people about debt. I want to take the shame out of debt. I want to take the emotion out of debt. And that's really what I want to do. I am one of eight truly independent debt advisors in this country. Now, right. what that really means is... I don't have exclusive links to one liquidator and one bankruptcy trustee. I am not the marketing arm for any liquidator or bankruptcy trustee in this country. Yes, I have panels of them. Yes, I have panels of accountants, panels of lawyers. I have panels of everything. But who I represent is you guys as the individual with debt or the business owner or director. And I'm here to give you holistic advice. If you have a business, that means I talk about your business and your company. I talk about you personally. And I talk about how these two intersect and mesh for both of you. Yes, they do. They do mesh. If you're an individual, you can bring your partner along because if you've got joint debts, they're meshing, right? I talk about that middle piece. So liquidators, they represent creditors. They have a fiduciary duty to creditors. Even if they send you to a bankruptcy trustee because you've got a direct penalty notice, the bit that you're missing is what you can't see between my hands, where basically my head is. <laughs> this little bit here, right? That's what I talk about. So I talk about both sides as well as that intersecting bit. That's why you want to have a conversation with me. It's free. So that is my offer. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Nathan.